Well, here we are. <laughs> uh, I thought about wearing my guitar up here uh, to see if it could help me a bit, but I decided against it. I guess a lapel mic will have to do. Our scripture reading for this evening is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you want to turn to your Bibles, go ahead and read that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the great privilege of sharing the sermon that you've given me with my brothers and sisters at Pleasant Grove at College Street. Thank you for your guidance throughout these past few weeks as I've prepared to preach out of Ephesians. Ask for your Holy Spirit to lead during this time that my words are not heard, but your word alone is heard. Let any distractions be disregarded and allow us to have complete focus on you and your purpose for us tonight. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have you ever considered that you were once dead? I do not believe that we ponder on this reality often, and why would we? How could a breathing, thinking, and active person who has a family interpersonal relationships, a job, a life, be dead? Isn't the act of pondering on your own existence enough proof that you were not dead, but alive? How can a dead person reflect on such existential things, let alone anything at all? In this passage, Paul, the author of Ephesians, is going to show us the reality that we were dead, that God brought us to life by his grace so that we might live life for him. Making the statement, you were dead, sounds impossible from a worldly perspective, but we are to recognize death for what it is. Death is not merely an end, but rather a state of being. Verse 1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Scripture tells us that we were dead, so we must take it at its word. At one time, you and I were dead people. But how did we, the perceived living, become dead? The thing is, we were never living. We were born dead. Instead of being born to life, we were born to death. We were born into a dead world of trespasses and sins. And we too were actively dead because of our innate position to live in opposition to God. We are trespassers. And when I hear the word trespass, my mind instinctively thinks of, about legal matters. We all know if you were to go into a big box store and attempt to steal something, or if you were to walk into a local business and begin to cause a disturbance, you would be asked to leave and never come back. Someone who commits an offense such as this sees a line, 
and they intentionally decide to cross it. This is what we've done. God has drawn a line, established a standard, and we have willingly crossed the line and disregarded the standard. This, uh, just like a person who would be put in handcuffs, taken away, and put in jail because of their criminal actions, we too were chained, removed from the presence of God, and kept in the state of wrathful judgment. But can we unintentionally trespass? The word translated trespass in the Greek is mason, meaning to fall aside or to stumble on something. I don't know about you, but I never intentionally decide to throw myself to the ground from time to time. I've never willingly stubbed my toe on the side of the coffee table just so I could lose my balance and knock over the lamp. Even our missteps are still trespasses onto the ground in which God has deemed us from stepping on. I'm not sure if we have any hunting enthusiasts here, um, but there are certain hunters that are guilty of poaching. This means the hunter has went onto somebody else's property and killed animals he or she knew were not legal game. This hunter was blatant in their efforts. But sometimes a hunter could not have planned appropriately, accidentally stepped onto someone's property and killed an animal that was not legal game. In both cases, the hunters are guilty of poaching. Concerning trespasses against God, our ignorance, inability, or mistakes do not keep us from our responsibility or consequences. We have missed what we were aiming at. We have missed the mark. This word trespass depicts the two sides of sin. We go headstrong into it. And we do it unintentionally. We're told in verse 2, it is the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. The word course implies there is a destination. The world is going somewhere. You might be familiar with the common phrase, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not sure about the handbasket part, but that is exactly where this world is headed and where we were headed. Towards the wrathful judgment of God. It tells us later in the verse that we were not blindly walking towards this judgment, but following after it. We were following the prince of the power of the air. Although we all recognize this, it's still scary to actually come out and say we were followers of Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air that this verse mentions. It also says that he is a spirit that is currently at work. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is something that's scary as well. Satan is still at work in this world. The same Satan that tempted Eve in the garden. The same Satan that tempted Jesus in the desert. And the same Satan that's God's enemy today. We are told that he works in the sons of disobedience. Who exactly are these disobedient sons? It was once you. It was once me. The evil that is in this world is done by people. Satan influences, people accept his influence, and people commit the evil. As people, we like to blame our situations or bad decisions on others. Like Ash preached a few weeks ago, we could blame our family or upbringing. We could blame our environment or position. We could blame others. And I believe we too often blame our sins against God on Satan. Yes, Satan wants us to disobey God, but we should not give him that pleasure. He is not able to move our hands. He does not have that kind of power. But if we commit the trespass, we are guilty. Verse 3 goes on to say, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Recognize the word all in this verse. What does the word all mean? 
It means all. It means the whole lot. And we all once lived this way. We lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of our bodies and moments. This is what following the prince of the power of the air looks like. It looks like living for ourselves and not living for God. Because we live for ourselves and not for God, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This just emphasizes what we have previously discussed. It was in our nature to be trespassers and sinners. It was in our nature to be condemned. It is who we were. Not most of us, not some of us, but here's that word again, all of us. Like the rest of mankind, we were dead. We need to be honest with ourselves about our condition because that is going to aid us when we're honestly sharing the gospel with others. We must tell people their real state and be upfront with them because most people are not going to feel as if they are dead, followers of the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, or children of wrath. We need to evangelize with them on their level, where they are at, because we were once there too. Not to say that we are no longer sinners, we, we still are sinners, but now that we are in Christ, our in, intentional sins should be less and less as we become more sanctified in him. And whether we are un, unaware of our sin or in hindsight recognize our sin, we should commit ourselves to a life of prayer and repentance, no longer listening to the influence of the enemy or have passions and desires for ourselves, but have passion and desire for God and his purpose for our lives. God's purpose for our lives is to be more like him. He has given us a new nature. He has given us his nature. We are told in verse four, but God being rich in mercy. Whenever you see that word, but it implies things are not going to be the same as they were before. But God implies that he has turned something around. around. He has made something right. And he has made us right with him because he is rich in mercy. God's mercy is not lacking. It's not something that he has a limited amount of. His mercy is abundant, plentiful, and never ending. And he extends his mercy because of his great love. God's love is not dull or moderate love. His love is substantial. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God brings dead trespassers alive. That is what he does. And God has assigned certain titles to himself, and we would be right to call him father, king, friend. But if we were to give him a title according to the work he has done in this passage, it would be life giver. He takes what is dead and breathes in life. He takes the broken pieces of one's life and creates a mosaic that is much more complete and beautiful than it was before. He finds those that are lost in their own darkness and illuminates himself before them. And he has done this for all who are in Christ. At the end of verse 5, it says, by grace, you have been saved. Now, the place Paul decided to put this statement is interesting. It really doesn't fit between the beginning of verse 5 and verse 6. The verse would sound complete by saying, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why is it that by grace you have been saved, just thrown in there, breaking up the sentence? It is almost as if Paul could not wait to say it. He was eager to proclaim the grace of God. Paul is so excited about grace that he cannot help but interject it into the middle of his statement. 
While studying for this sermon, uh, this part reminded me of my son Declan, and he just loves to do the same to do the same thing. He just interjects things in the middle of his sentences all the time. And for example, upon greeting him, whether it's me, his mother, his grandparents, or anyone he is comfortable with, he will say something along the lines of, "Hi, do you have a surprise for me? Oh, I love you." <laughs> My son really is a loving child, but during during these moments, getting a surprise is the most valuable thing to him at the time. And Paul's exclamation of God's grace reveals what is the most valuable thing to him in this passage. It is God's grace that he wants to drive home and make sure the reader understands that we are, in fact, saved only by his grace. Listen to these amazing words by Paul. And raise us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been raised up with Christ, but to what extent? Are we left outside the gates? Are we allowed to come inside the gates, but dare not enter the halls of glory? Are we allowed to enter the halls of glory, but not enter the heavenly banquet? Are we seated at the end of the table and only get the leftovers from what has already been served? No, we are seated with Christ. We are right next to him and get to enjoy all of his glory. And the verse doesn't speak of our place next to Christ as something that is to come. It is written in the past tense. He has raised us up and seated us next to him. This means that we are presently rose up and we're currently sitting with him. We are already there. This is our present reality. And there's nothing that we can do to lose our position, nothing that can happen that would squander our place at the table because Christ has secured it for us. Jesus was raised up on the cross and with him, we were raised to die to our sin. Jesus rose from the grave and because of it, we are no longer dead. And because Christ is alive and sitting at the right hand of the father, we are alive and seated with him in glory. The proof that Christ has indeed secured us is found in the following verse. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has extended his grace so that we will be demonstrations of his grace for all time. James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is saying that we are his prized possession. That above all things, in creation, he values us the most. We are not insignificant in his eyes. We are not merely a commodity or a product to him. We are his most precious achievement in this fallen world. That screams, look at what God has done. I know I don't neglect my prized possessions or disregard my achievements. So how much more will God notice and cherish us? So much that he wants to lavish us in his grace and kindness forever. God will sustain us through our time here on earth and until we are with him. And just as God is rich in mercy, withholding the punishment we deserve, he is also rich in grace, giving us unmerited favor. His grace is unmeasurable. There's nothing you can compare it to. It is unmatched and never ending. There's been nothing like it before, and there's nothing that will ever be like it again. He gives us his grace because he's a kind God. His heart is tender towards us. And we serve and worship a God that regards us. 
In verse 8, Paul sums up his proclamation about grace and expounds on it. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, Paul is trying to reinforce the idea of sola gratia. It is by grace alone that you have been saved. There's nothing that can save us apart from God's grace. But that is not where it ends. There must be a response. We are told that we must have faith in God's grace. We are not just given grace. Through our faith, putting our complete trust and confidence in God is how his grace is applied to us. I urge you, if there's anyone here that has not put their faith in Jesus, who has not accepted God's gracious gift of salvation, that you would do so. I'd love for you to recognize that the riches of his grace is able to cover anything. There's nothing that you have ever done and that you might deem unforgivable that he cannot pardon. God's grace is attainable for you. Do not listen to the lies that you're too far gone or uh, God can't forgive you. Just, just have faith that he will do as he said he would do. Please come to Christ, have faith in him, and be forgiven by his grace. If you have any further questions about how you can come to faith in Christ and receive his saving grace, I would be happy to talk with you. You can talk with our pastor, Ash. You can talk with, uh, with, with, uh, with one of our elders, Tim or Kyle. You can speak with the majority of the people in this room. Just don't let this opportunity pass because today is the day of salvation. But how do we not receive God's grace? Verse 8 through 9 tells us specifically how we are unable to achieve it for ourselves. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. When it comes to our salvation, we have not earned it. You cannot earn it. There isn't an amount of good things that we can achieve or merit. Um, we can't achieve or merit uh, God's grace. It, it must be given to us, and God gives it, gives it to us as a free gift. We have just celebrated Christmas, and my son got a number of gifts, but it was not a function of what he deserved. I and those that love him gave him the gifts exclusively because we love him. He did not need to earn his gifts by doing chores or paying me money, which would be nice. <laughs> Getting good grades or just being good in general. Because no matter the circumstances, I was going to give him Christmas presents anyways. God has done a similar thing for us. We don't deserve his gift of grace. We will not get to heaven one day and say to God, look at the life I lived. I fed the hungry, clothed the cold. I was a good friend. I was a good employee. I was a good mother. I was a good father. So give me what I'm owed. It doesn't work like that. In Isaiah 64, 6, we are told that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Your good deeds will not save you. And, and if you're putting your faith in them, you're putting your faith in something that is insufficient and unable to save. This is why we cannot be prideful in ourselves when it comes to our salvation so that no one may boast. How can we boast in something that we did not do? To do so would be the highest form of theft we could commit. When writing for uh, papers for seminary courses, I always loathed writing out the bibliography, and I despised the footnotes, and I wish I did not have to perform the tedious task of writing them in. But it's necessary keeps me from pawning someone else's work off as my own. 
lets the reader know that these words are not mine. And if the words are not mine, then I do not get the credit for them. Writing in footnotes in a bibliography is ultimately an act of humility. It is saying that I am unable to complete my work without relying on others' work. We should give credit where credit is due. We should not plagiarize God. We should not pass off his work as our own. When it comes to our salvation, Jesus is the only source. Since the work of salvation is not our own, we should be demonstrations of God's grace, extending mercy, kindness, grace, and love to others, sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has been merciful, kind, gracious, and loving toward us. And because of that, we should be eager to share that fact with others. We should not be passive, but passionate about those who are dead in their sin, finding life in Christ. What excuse do we have to not share with others what he has done for us? Since God is merciful, we are to share his mercy. Since God is gracious, we are to share his grace. We need to let this responsibility entrench our lives and know that it is why Christ has made us alive so that we might share Jesus with a lost and dead world, letting them know that there's a way to salvation, and once they're saved, they're in the fold of God forever. Now that we know that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and God has saved us by his grace through our faith, what now? The last verse in this passage reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it mean that we are God's workmanship? Like what has been already mentioned, we are new creations created to be demonstrations of his grace. We are his artwork. We are his masterpiece. He chose us to be the ones he works in for his glory. But we're not to be like a, like a fine piece of art hanging on a wall somewhere. There is a call to action says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You might be asking yourself, I thought you said that good works were not necessary. Good works are not required for our salvation, but good works are significant in the Christian life. This is one of the telltale signs that an individual is living for Christ. James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not saying that one can come to faith by works, uh, but there must be works in one's life for their faith to be alive. There must be fruit. We are a people with a purpose. We should do things like feeding the hungry, clothing the cold, being a good friend, being a good employee, being good parents and sharing the gospel with, uh, with the lost. We should want every aspect of our lives to uh, glorify God. And how do we accomplish that? We must simply be faithful and do what God tells us to do in this passage. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared beforehand, and this is how God ordained the universe. He set out for us to walk in good works. He has had the standard since the beginning, and it is nothing new. This phrase, God prepared beforehand, is telling us that he had an order. That order was for good, but we threw it into chaos. But what else does this 10th verse of Ephesians imply? It implies that even though we are fallen people who removed ourselves from the presence of God because of our sin, God still had a plan for us from the beginning. 
He had a plan for us to be reconciled unto him once again, and that plan was Jesus. So that we might walk in the good works he predestined for us to walk. This whole passage really does tell all of our stories. Those who are in Christ were saved from something by someone and for a purpose. I've never really had the opportunity to share my testimony in a formal setting such as this, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to do so because these 10 verses outline my story perfectly, just as it does for all who have been saved. Do not like to talk about it much, but I have been in addiction recovery for, from opiates going on five years now. I come from so much generational pain and hurt that the only way my family knew how to deal was to get high. I learned from an early age that if there was a problem, it could all be taken away by a drink or, or taking a pill. So that's what I did when my life became a problem for me. I started out with some alcohol and a little bit of cannabis until I was drinking and smoking daily. Quickly realized that it was not enough to get me through my problem, so I went on to the harder stuff. The normal party drugs that are commonly accepted, but that shortly became too dull as well. I finally found myself with a needle in my arm. I still have the scars today to prove it. I was so desperate to get rid of my problems that I lost sight of what was actually happening. My problems were not going anywhere, but instead they were compounding on top of one another because I was too numb to notice. When I finally came to the conclusions that drugs were not going to solve my problems, I decided to take it in my own hands. I attempted suicide. I wanted out so bad that I was willing to die to escape the pain and hurt that I felt. And I was pronounced dead. And for three minutes, there was no life in my eyes. There was no, no body function. They chalked me up to being just another person who was an addict, who had overdosed, who had finally met their fate. But God. God had another plan. He woke me up. I was not dead, but alive. And it was this moment where it was as if God was saying, uh-uh, not yet. You would have thought I would have been happy that my life had been spared and I was able to continue living. But I was angry. I was so stubborn that I was still mad at the God that I did not believe in. My anger and the fact that I slipped and let the hospital staff know that it was an intentional overdose landed me in a behavioral health hospital. Had been there in places like it many times before, so I thought it was going to be nothing new. This time, the place was close to empty. The times I had been there before, the place was full of people to talk with or play cards with, but not this time. I was alone and bored. My counselor came to me and suggested that I go to a faith-based rehab in Crossville, Tennessee, and if I was up for it, they would try to get me a residency there. I told her that I would think about it, and then went back to that empty room. There was nothing to do. I was wanting a cigarette and more so to use, but that wasn't a reality at the time. I had to do something that kept my attention. And on the bookshelf in the corner of the room, I noticed a Bible, and I thought, why not? There's nothing else to do. My counselor is talking about putting me in a faith-based rehab, so why not act the part while I was there? I read the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end the first day. The second day, I read the Gospel of Matthew again. 
And on the third day, my counselor notified me that I was accepted into a faith-based rehab without me even approving it. So that's where I went. Even though at the time I did not believe what I was reading in Matthew, let alone God, that was the only place I had to go. While I was there, a spiritual battle was happening within me. God tried to rope me in and me bucking him at every turn until one day I was out on that front porch of that drug rehab house for men in Crossville, Tennessee, and God softened my heart and I came to a saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I haven't been perfect. I've messed up. But I can say that God will have seen me through five years of sobriety in June of this year. He has given me a relationship with my son. He has given me a church family. He has given me a ministry where I play music and lead others in worship of him. He has given me a seminary education. And he has given a once dead man life so that he may be used for his purposes. All glory be to God. I ask you all to hear this testimony as a witness to how merciful, gracious, kind, and loving God is. And again, to those who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, do it and experience God's saving grace. A much, much more meaningful life than you could ever expect and rest in him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to thank you for the time we had tonight, worshiping you, digging into your word, being with one another and being in your presence. Ask that. As we go away from this place, that we think on the grace you have given us and let us bolster our efforts in sharing it with others. Soften the hearts of those who are dead in their sin. And bring them unto yourself so that they may live. We love you and your son, Jesus. And it is his name I pray. Amen. Please stand as we close in the song this evening. What is the grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is only bound to Him. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not only, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, 
His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley with me. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus fled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now endeavors my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will free me home. And day by day, I know he will redeem me. Until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. But all the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen. Uh, awesome job, Cheeto. Um, uh, beautiful message. Um, something that as we were talking about the sermon and, and, and his testimony being the, the perfect, um, conclusion to it. Um, I'm going to get worked up. Um, he said, that's the, the story of Ephesians is all of our stories, right? Ephesians two, one through 10 is all of our stories. Every single one of us. Um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what he brought you from, and that's what he's brought you to. Um, and, and, um, beautifully said, um, thank you for, uh, your testimony at the end. Um, amen. I don't have anything else to say. Um, I hope you have a great week. Um, hope you let this, uh, message, um, remind you of the grace that you have in Jesus Christ. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.